Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Save big money in your next project with help from Menards. Move water where you need it quickly with a Barracuda sump pump. Sump pumps keep your basement dry when big storms hit unexpectedly. Get a half-horsepower cast iron Barracuda sump pump on sale now through May 5th. Hurry into Menards and don't forget to check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Hello and welcome to I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I hope that you are doing okay. We are now weeks and weeks into this fucking lockdown and this pandemic. And I know from what I'm hearing about online and from friends that people are starting to fray at the edges. Couples are starting to uh, break up while stuck in quarantine together. And some people are not in a couple, not being driven mad with their families because they're having to isolate completely on their own. And that's why I thought today's chat would be perfect because it is about loneliness, which I know so many of us are struggling with in this moment. Even if you are with other people, you can still, sometimes that can make you feel even lonelier or you're just so far away from your friends and your family and you are missing human touch. I I got the chance to speak to Vivek Murthy, who is the Surgeon General uh, of the United States, or he was the Surgeon General of the United States. He's an absolutely brilliant man who has done a study on loneliness and the impact that it has on our lives, not just emotionally, but also physically, the impact it has on our actual health and the longevity of our lives. He's gone around the world to learn as much as he can about it. And I was able to learn. So I've never felt dumber in my life. I've never felt more, I've never felt like more of a stupid person than when sitting opposite someone who has this prestigious a job and level of knowledge. But I learned so much from him. He broke it down in a way that even I could understand. And it made me really, really think about the changes that I need to be making in my life to prolong it and to fill it up more. I'm such an introvert. I'm someone who naturally, like a kind of house cat, can just slink off and be away from people for weeks at a time. Uh, so therefore, I'm actually doing okay during this um, crazy time. But uh, because of that, it means that I have learned how to hypernormalize my own loneliness in a way that it doesn't feel uncomfortable to me. But speaking to Vivek really made me think twice about that and also think twice about whether or not I'm checking in enough with the people that I love and making sure that they are not lonely. It's a, it's such a stigmatized conversation that we don't think about enough and people are afraid to put their hands up and admit that they're lonely. And I think that this is a great way to start destigmatizing that conversation. He has a book that's coming out this week. It's called Together and it's wonderful. And he's wonderful. And I just really hope that you learn something from this episode and enjoy it. Lots of love. Sending you so much fucking love. I can't believe what is happening. And I know that the news is so stressful and I just hope that you're safe.
So I am joined by Vivek H. Murthy. He is an author, he is a physician, and was the 19th Surgeon General of the United States. Here to talk to me about loneliness. Hello, Vivek. Hello, Jamila. How are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm really happy to be having this conversation. Over at iWay, we are huge fans of yours, and this subject couldn't be more important, I think, to our community, considering that this is predominantly a mental health movement. And I think that loneliness is uh, one of the pillars of the things that are creating mental health issues in our society and in our world today. And so that's why you having written this book, uh, which we're here to talk to me about, it's called Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World, uh, is a sort of perfect topic. And I wanted to start off by just asking you why you wrote this book. Well, Jamila, it wasn't the book I thought I would write. No. I I had uh, ideas for other books when I finished my time in government. But something happened to me when I was serving uh, in government that made me realize that my view of health and of public health in particular was more narrow than it should be. When I was traveling around the United States and meeting with people in town halls and living rooms all across the country, I was hearing uh, stories about illnesses they were struggling with. Sometimes this was challenges with addiction. Sometimes it was obesity. It was depression. It was anxiety. And I was not surprised by that. But what I was surprised by was that behind so many of these stories, were stories of loneliness and a deeper emotional pain that people were experiencing. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is people wouldn't come up to me and say, hi, my name is Vivek or Jamila and I'm struggling with loneliness. Mm -hmm. But they would say things like, I feel invisible. I feel like if I disappeared, nobody would even care. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm struggling all on my own. I feel like all these issues I have to deal with, uh, it's just me. There's nobody else. And these were people coming up to you with physical ailments and then telling you that aside from their physical ailments, they also suffer from terrible loneliness or depression? So they told me about the issues that were in the front pages of the paper, the big illnesses that we read about every day. But it was this deeper thread of loneliness that really caught my attention because while nobody named it specifically, what I found, Jamila, is when I started to surface it more explicitly, when I started asking people, hey, how many of us believe that loneliness is a problem, either for us or for our families? It was like nothing I had seen before to that point. I saw these flickers of visceral recognition in their eyes Mm -hmm. as if they had felt that or somebody they loved had. It felt real to them. And it was very different from the cerebral recognition that I would sometimes see when I talked about other issues like the Zika virus or other topics where people were, you know, processing cerebrally the different steps and risk factors and then deciding, okay, I should take action to protect myself. This is different. This was a very visceral recognition that, yes, this is something I've seen, that I've felt, that I've experienced. And once that was there, and once we opened up the topic, it was like the floodgates opened and everyone seemed to have a story to tell about their struggles with loneliness. Would you say that there is a stigma around loneliness here? Absolutely. And I may have made it seem more forthcoming than it was. People eventually did talk, but What I had to do in order to get people to open up is I not only had to raise the issue explicitly, but I often would lead with my own story of loneliness. So you were forthcoming about your own stories of loneliness. Would you mind telling me briefly your own experience? Sure. So I I, I struggled with loneliness from fairly early in life. When I was a a young child in elementary school, uh, like third grade, fourth grade, I remember uh, being feeling in this pit in my stomach you know, when my parents would drop me off at school. And it wasn't because I was nervous about teachers or about exams. 
but I was anxious about interacting with the other kids. Now, I wasn't deeply introverted. Uh, I actually wanted to hang out with other children. I wanted to you know, play on the sports teams. I wanted to have fun with the others, um, but I was really shy. And as a result, uh, I had a hard time sort of opening up, you know, conversations and, and fitting in, if you will. Now, it didn't help that I also felt different because of my cultural background. I was in a school where I was the only uh, Indian uh, kid in the school. People, yeah, people found uh, the food that we ate and the sweets that I would sometimes bring in for birthdays and things like that to be strange and weird tasting and uh, <laughs> Fantastic tasting, I will say for the record. At least I thought. I so. can't speak personally yeah. to your mother's or father's cooking, but they're uh, very, very good cooks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> our food is brilliant. But it took me years to know that my brother and I—we didn't eat Indian food until we were in our twenties. Really? Because we used to feel ashamed of it and be afraid of mm. smelling like curry spices. Yeah. Because of the bullying associated with that from school, or even just the mild prodding and laughing and ridiculing. Exactly. There, were, there was a lot of that. Yeah. So that was fresh in my mind. And you know, the funny thing, Jamila, about these experiences we have when we're children is even though we may outgrow them, mm-hmm. as I did, I was able over time to build confidence and make friends in high school and to be blessed with strong friendships. But that experience is one that I've never quite forgotten, you know, and no. it took me many years actually to... Um, to shed uh, some of that initial anxiety or some of those butterflies in my stomach when I was thrust into a new situation and meeting new people. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so that was fresh on my mind. So when I would go to these town halls uh, in different parts of the country, I would often share this story, you know, not because I needed people to know about me, but because I thought if I was going to ask people to talk about personal experiences, mm-hmm. I should lead by example and be willing to do the same. Mm-hmm. So then from traveling around not just the country, but also then the world, you've collected data and experiences and case studies and pulled them together to create this book that helps us understand global loneliness. And so it sounds like a ridiculous question, um, but what is loneliness? I think it's a really good question because it gets confused with a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. So what loneliness is, is this subjective feeling that we do not have enough social connection in our life. And this is different from isolation, which is an objective term. It's an objective measure, in fact, of how many people I have around me. But the reason these are distinct is because what matters is what you feel. Just because you're not isolated, because you may have hundreds of people around you all the time, doesn't necessarily mean that you feel connected to them Mm -hmm. or that you feel you have strong relationships with them. And so you could feel quite lonely in that setting. And by contrast, just because you don't have many people around you, uh, if you, let's say, just have one or two good friends, it doesn't mean you're consigned to be lonely. You could be quite content with one or two good friendships. So what matters in whether we're lonely or not is the quality and strength of our connections. And to me, one of the hallmarks of a strong relationship is one where we feel that we can be our authentic selves, where we can show up as who we are, where we don't have to wear a mask and try to be somebody who are not just to be acceptable or mm-hmm. to impress somebody. That's great. And the two of the things that it's, it's so true what you say about being able to be surrounded by so many other people and how content you can be with just a few. Uh, I know that when I was coming up as a TV host, I was successful from an early age at like 21, I think, or 22, I entered the industry and had an immediate rise, which I was very fortunate for. But it meant that I was constantly surrounded by other people in my industry. 
and constantly being told wonderful things about myself uh, and flattered and everyone was doing everything for me. And uh, I was making all these new friends uh, who perhaps I might not have met or been of interest to had I not been famous and successful. And I've never felt lonelier in my life than I did uh, in my 20s, even more so than my actual, literally lonely, isolated, sad teens. Mm. My 20s felt so lonely, surrounded by so many people that I didn't have any true human animal bond with Mm. uh, that not that human animal bond makes sense, but I think you know what I mean. Um, That a bond that comes really truly from within to another person and that led me to feeling complete and being completely suicidal at 26 and then deciding that I had to completely reconfigure my entire social life and start to cut out everyone who I felt was just a surface level connection and basically only allow in the people who I found the most stimulating I believe in that sentence and you probably don't approve of this, but oh well, fuck it. Uh, uh, if you are, <laughs> if you are the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And I was like, I'm going to surround myself with not just the smartest, but just the most exceptional people. They might not have necess- uh, the credentials or particularly high-powered jobs, but they are incredibly smart and funny and the warmest and the best people. And I rejoined. Uh, those relationships and made sure that I was surrounded only with those people and so now I've got about 12 friends like Jesus and uh, that might not sound like many like I can't throw a big birthday party Uh, I can't really have a big wedding so I'm gonna have to elope purely out of like how depressing the the tiny (laughs) wedding reception would be Um, given your South Asian background lots of people will show up at the wedding don't you worry (laughs) Um, and so I have a kind of chosen family of these 12 people Mm. that are my tribe now that I have with me everywhere and I've never felt so whole as a human, as I do now, way more so than when I was surrounded by people at parties and at the top of every guest list, which was just a really shit, weird time in my life. That's amazing that you made that journey. You know, I'm curious, how long do you, do you think it took you to realize what was making you lonely when you first felt, you know, in the beginnings of your being famous that people were coming and, you know, coming to you and wanting to spend time with you, but that it wasn't exactly fulfilling in the way you wanted? Like, how long did it take you to connect the dots and realize, you know, these connections aren't feeling fulfilling in the way that I need? Well, I tried to commit suicide when I was about 26, and it was probably in the six months after that, because I decided, I made a very, very intense decision that I was going to do everything in my power to find mental health. Mm. What, however ruthless I had to be, however ridiculous I had to be, however brutally honest with everyone I had to be, that was the only terms upon which I was going to be willing to stay on this earth. Mm. And so because of that, I was in a kind of diehard focused analysis just on what had gotten me to such a desperate point at such a young age when I was someone who was so privileged. Mm. And so I, that was one of the first. I didn't have therapy yet. I was just still too stupid and proud to have therapy at that age. Um, but I started kind of dissecting all the different parts of my life and uh, looking into them very, very uh I guess almost as if I was analyzing data hmm. and working out which things felt right and which f- things felt wrong. And my lifestyle felt completely wrong. Hmm. This it girl party DJ just didn't suit me at all. Hmm. I don't know if it really suits anyone, but it really didn't work for me. And because I didn't do drugs and I didn't drink alcohol, I was even more painfully aware of my own loneliness. Because hmm. sometimes I think that we drink at parties 
and we take drugs to uh, feel a kind of topical sense of happiness and connection because that becomes the connection. I think a lot of people I know, they'll go out in the social environment and uh, not even out of nerves, but out of the, out of boredom, they will inebriate themselves in order for the inebriation to become the common bond mm-hmm. amongst everyone. And the hangover in the morning can become the common bond between everyone. And I think my generation are doing that to a point where they're hurting themselves. But for some, whatever reason, I just didn't. Hmm. And so therefore it made me able at a very young age to become potently aware of my loneliness hmm. and how it was effectively killing me. But back to you. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry you had to go through that No, experience. that's all right. I'm okay now. I'm here to tell the tale. I've got a bloody podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, you know, and this is about shame, this podcast hmm. predominantly. And loneliness, as I was saying earlier, is such a huge uh, cause of shame amongst people and myself included I still feel slightly flushed in the cheeks whenever I admit to my own loneliness mm. even right now with you a stranger uh, I even though you are now my sports teammate forever it's still something yeah there we, there we go. go it's done <laughs> um, it's still something that we really need to understand uh, you say that loneliness social anxiety and depression often get confused with each other so you've defined loneliness for me. What would you say is the difference between the other two things? It's a good question because one of the challenges with loneliness um, and one of the reasons people look around them and sometimes say, hey, why are we saying loneliness is so common? I don't see it around me. Is because loneliness can look like a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Very often, <clears throat> very often in men, when loneliness presents, especially in older men, it can actually look like irritability, It can look like social withdrawal. It can look like anger uh, and frustration. Um, And it's very common for older men when they either retire, Mm -hmm. lose a spouse, or fall ill to actually have what triggered an episode of loneliness in their life or a long period of loneliness. So this is important because if if we don't recognize that loneliness can look like sadness and withdrawal, that it can look like anger, you know, and and grouchiness, that it can uh, look like, you know, like general withdrawal, that it can look like aloofness even. Mm -hmm. And we can end up judging people who look like that. Like we can meet somebody at a party and say, oh, that person seems aloof. It seems like they don't want to hang out. I'm trying to talk to them and they're not being friendly, you know, the heck with them. Sometimes that person is just an asshole. It's important to also not (laughs) give too much the benefit of the doubt. But yes, I agree. It's important to be empathetic and kind. And the reason is when you understand actually what loneliness does to us, you can start to understand why people manifest like this. So, Mm -hmm. and I'll take you on a slight detour here, but you'll understand why. So if we go through the, understand how we evolved to be social creatures, then you understand why we have the reaction of loneliness that we do today. So thousands of years ago, when we were wandering the tundra, when we were hunter-gatherers, we depended on each other for safety. So there was literally safety in numbers. If you were with trusted uh, people, you could take turns watching at night to make sure there weren't predators. You could take the food that you gathered and you could pool it so that you each had a little bit of food each day instead of starving you know, and from day to day. And you could also help out with general life duties like raising children, which is a tough thing for one person to do or two people to do on their own, but which groups can actually really do well together. The expression of it takes a village. Yes. Yeah. And we literally evolved in these villages. And so in that setting, what happened is that if you were separated from your tribe, that literally put you in danger. 
And because you were in danger, more likely to get eaten by a predator or to starve, your body reacted by going into a state of threat, increased threat. And that was physiologically, in terms of how your body reacts to it, that's a stress state. Now, stress isn't all bad. If you experience stress for a short period of time, it can actually boost your performance. The kind of stress you might experience, for example, before a big exam or before you give a big speech uh, or you give an interview, for example, uh, that might you know, actually enhance your performance. The problem with stress is when it's chronic because all of those stress hormones like cortisol and others that elevate during times of stress, mm-hmm. when they persist for a long time in your body, they can actually increase the inflammation in your body. They can damage tissues and blood vessels and actually increase your risk of heart disease and other chronic illnesses. And am I right in saying that our bodies haven't really evolved over time to recognize uh, that the old stresses of the sort of saber-toothed tiger is no different from sort of online troll on the internet or just bills or uh, rent and, and general life trauma or not being able to pay for stuff? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So our, <clears throat> the way our physiology has evolved, our bodies have evolved, has yeah. not shifted all that much. I mean, right. I couldn't feel like more of a Neanderthal right now just talking to you because you're so educated. But I no, just no, all no. I mean is that I feel as though we uh, that our bodies still constantly respond to stress in a sort of quite maximum way. We don't have a way of necessarily regulating according to how stressful the situation is. Yeah, so I think where I think you're, you're spot on is that our body is very similar to mm-hmm. how it was thousands of years mm-hmm. ago. The fact that technology has dramatically changed around us is not necessarily reflected in how our body reacts uh, to stress. And so the problem is that what used to happen way back then is when you felt, when you were separated from your tribe and you felt lonely, that was your impetus to go reconnect with your tribe. In that sense, loneliness is a natural signal, just like hunger or thirst. Yeah. When you're lacking in nutrients or in, in water, your body tells you you're hungry, you're thirsty, then you go find food or water, and then that feeding, feeling subsides. Similarly with loneliness, a natural signal that tells you something you need for survival, social connection is missing, should motivate you to find social connection. The problem is, just like with hunger or thirst, when that need goes unmet, then that chronic state of loneliness, which is a stress state, just wreaks havoc on our bodies. And it does two things um, that are actually quite paradoxical, uh, which actually make things worse. Number one is because you're in an elevated threat state, it leads you to see sometimes even well-intentioned outreach as risky or dangerous. And this might seem strange to us. So we might go up to somebody at a party who looks lonely and say, hey, you know, my name's uh, Jamil. I just wanted to see how you're doing. And that you might think, hey, I'm being nice. I'm reaching out. Mm-hmm. Now that my person might look at you with suspicion and say, well, is she here to make fun of me? Is she taking pity on me? Well, I don't mm-hmm. want to be a part of that. So we might uh, misconstrue, you know, what's actually happening in front of us. But the second thing that happens as a result of this elevated threat state is that we turn our gaze inward. So when we are under threat, we tend to focus more on ourselves because it's a survival instinct. But imagine if you're with somebody who's chronically lonely and who's predominantly focused on themselves all the time, it's not always a lot of fun to hang out with such people and they often Mm -hmm. have challenges connecting with others. But perhaps the last reflex or reaction to loneliness, which makes it really tough, is that the more lonely you are, the more your self-confidence erodes. And what happens in loneliness is you can start to believe the narrative that you're lonely because you're not likable, because you're not lovable, because you're broken or deficient in some way. In the beginning, you may know you know that's not true, that your loneliness is just circumstantial. 
But when it continues for a long period of time, you start to doubt yourself, Mm -hmm. start to ask these questions. So when you put all this together and you've got a chronically lonely person who has an elevated threat state and is misconstruing well-intentioned outreach as something suspicious, who's focused excessively on themselves and who has real challenges now with self-confidence, you can imagine how getting out of that spiral of loneliness can be really challenging. And it's a lot more complicated than just telling a lonely person, hey, go to a party or go to a happy hour mm-hmm. and you'll just meet people and you'll be fine. I agree. Sometimes it can be hard to know if um, what you're feeling is loneliness or depression or anxiety. While these things are distinct, there is a relationship there. And when you are lonely, you can often feel depressed and anxious, which is why it's so important to figure out how we can break that cycle uh, so that you can move away from those tendencies to look inward, to be sort of more suspicious of people around you, uh, to be less confident in yourself and can actually build the kind of connections to yourself and to others that truly make you happy. Okay, I'm just going to stop you there because we're going to go to a quick break. Sounds good. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week you know as you're bottling things up because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to and this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week you just have this complete freedom honestly I think everyone should have therapy regardless of whether they think they need it because it's so amazing to have a confidant it's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. And we're back. What's running through my head right now is just thinking about all the different friends I have who have depression 
and who have anxiety and wondering if perhaps part of that, a big part of that might be a loneliness because I do know that all of them tend to have the same trait of isolating themselves when they feel depressed sometimes because they don't want to burden other people. I've definitely done this when I was younger. I don't want to burden other people with my sadness or be the sort of the downer um, when I desperately probably just need a cuddle. Not to say that that is the antidote to all mental illness, but I do think that physical affection or just a sense of community would have helped me. But I did the most counterproductive thing, which was to remove myself for other people's sake and therefore just become more and more isolated and also make the other people around me feel like I didn't care about them and I didn't want to see them. Mm. And I know that I sometimes take it personally when my depressed friends sort of shun all of us long periods of time and so that's this is really helpful because it's, it's giving me a different kind of angle of looking at things and how to approach things with those people and what you're describing Jamila is very very common mm-hmm. um, it's a tendency a lot of us have who have struggled with loneliness to just isolate ourselves further but then ironically to to feel concerned or upset or sometimes even angry when other people uh, do that when they withdraw themselves when you know that what they need is human connection mm-hmm you know, what I've found and what I've wondered about a lot is I look at um, the culture that I grew up in, uh, in the United States, which I think is similar to uh, to many, you know, cultures in the modern world where we put a premium on respecting people's boundaries, on like keeping people their privacy and not intruding on their lives. And I think a lot of that is good. It's important. Mm-hmm. But I wonder sometimes if we do it to an extreme where sometimes we do not... Uh, where sometimes we're not proactive enough in reaching out to other people when they're in a difficult state. You know, if somebody, um, I've had friends who, for example, have lost loved ones and who have said that they went through weeks where nobody reached out to them, not because people didn't care, but because people were just giving them space, right? But it's sometimes I wonder if we give each other too much space. Mm-hmm. And that we should. I mean, you're not even supposed to double text. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you're a psycho, <laughs> a stalker if you double text. Yeah. FaceTime, it's like, if someone FaceTimes me, I, th- I immediately think maniac, like <laughs> maniacal murderer. If someone actually wants to have a face to face phone yeah, call. Let me just make a note here. Do not FaceTime me. Yeah, Jamila. never okay. FaceTime me. Yeah, especially if we don't know each other well. I can't, I actually, I really, I can't believe it when someone does it. Like, we do. I'm definitely a, a guilty of the bat of like, uh, over boundarying myself <laughs> and others. Um, and, so you know, I, I don't think that you, one has to be extreme about it. But for example, if you have a friend, you yeah. know, who's, uh, let's say, going through a difficult time um, and just has sequestered themselves, to take the initiative and actually reach out and go over maybe even to their house and knock on their door to check and see how they're doing, mm-hmm. I think it's often the right thing to do. Now, they may even see you at the door and not open it. They may open it and say, hey, I really don't feel like talking. And they may say, can you come back later? And they may close the door. But I guarantee you this, the fact that you had the heart and took the initiative to go and to check on them will mean something to them. Yeah. And I think that the world would be better if we took more initiative like that to reach out to people in our life. I have a friend who struggles very much so with his mental health and he does not like being around other people when he's in one of his darkest moods. But I know that he does secretly like people trying (laughs) just so he can know (laughs) that people care. I don't even think he's aware that he likes it, but I'm aware that it has a positive impact on him. But when I text him, he doesn't respond. And then that sends me into a frantic Mm. worry. Mm. 
for his safety. And so what we've now got is a system in which I will text him and all he has to text me back is just the word no. And that no just means I'm alive, I'm okay, but I don't want to talk to you. That's really that, wonderful that you that system, have that system. It's great. The system works so well for me. It's a caps lock no. It's a hard no. There's no <laughs> negotiating it. Uh, it's it's a, it's a polite fuck off, uh, but thanks, essentially. Um, but I highly recommend that system if you have a friend similar to mine. Uh, because it just show, it it just it enables both of you to have the exchange that you want. Yeah. At the minimal. I was reading as well uh, from your work that 60% of students, because I think sometimes when we think of loneliness, we think of older people or widows. Uh, you know, after the age of 70, people tend to just sort of put you by the window and leave you there uh, and visit every so often. And actually, it's very young people struggling with this. And I think that's something that's really important to discuss. You know, young people who've grown up predominantly on the internet, and obviously we can't categorically claim claim that social media and the internet are responsible for loneliness, but there's definitely a connection between our pursuit of online communities versus in-person communities. Um, To the point where 60% of students feel lonely. Yeah, so this is a really fascinating uh, finding that I think surprised most people. Most people, when they thought about loneliness, thought that this would be elderly people Mm. who are most impacted. But now there have been a growing number of studies which are showing that, in fact, one of the major peaks of loneliness happens during adolescence and young adulthood. And so when those numbers started coming back, you know, people started to wonder, well, why is that? These uh, folks in Gen Z and millennials are so connected by technology. They're around people uh, quite often. Why why are they so lonely? And I think it comes back to this issue of what matters in loneliness? Is mm-hmm. it the quantity of connections or the quality of connections? And there are several things that are driving loneliness, I think, especially for, for younger people. And one of them is how we use technology. Uh, technology itself is a, is a neutral tool. Um, it's really how we use it that determines whether it strengthens our connections or weakens them. So for example, if I'm coming to New York and I decide to post uh, on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram that, hey, I'm coming to New York, if any of my friends are free for, for dinner, uh, let's hang out uh, and assume that I have a, a circle of followers who are my actual friends. Mm-hmm. Um, Impossible. <laughs> then that's actually could be a quite powerful way of using social media to, to bridge to offline connection. Mm-hmm. And then I have lunch with my friend or dinner with my friend and I feel great about it. On the other hand, if I'm feeling lonely on a Friday night, and I don't have anywhere to go. And I think, well, let me just scroll through Instagram and I'll look at my friend's pictures and I feel connected to them that way. Mm-hmm. Well, that rarely works because when you do that, what you're doing is you're comparing other people's best days and highlight moments to your average days. And you always come up short in that mm-hmm. respect. So you end up feeling worse about your life. Well, speak for yourself, Vivek. Okay. <laughs> my life is just one big highlight reel. <laughs> So, well, well, mine isn't. So, yeah. <laughs> so you know, so I think that, that that's like another challenge is how we use uh, technology. But the other thing about technology that's important, though, is that technology reinforces the predominant culture around us. And so we have yeah. to ask, well, what is that culture? And <clears throat> my concern with our, our world right now is that increasingly in more and more countries, the predominant culture is one that tells us that to matter in life, to be successful, that we need to accumulate either fame, wealth, 
or power. And that could be a fancy title. It could be lots of friends, you know, on Instagram or, you know, to be a popular person, you know, in school. It could be, you know, being rich by whatever standard you measure that by. Mm -hmm. But this is what we associate with value. And we hold those people up who have achieved those milestones as success stories. We write books about them. We produce movies about them. Mm -hmm. And we usually attribute these successes to one person also. You know, we like to tell the story of Steve Jobs who made Apple happen, yep. even though there were thousands of other people who nope, likely helped make just that him. happen. Just no, <laughs> he did the plumbing. He made all of the food. He's a really incredible guy. Package each iPhone show by him himself. some more respect. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so true that the leader of an empire is becomes the entire empire. Right. And that's a story that we like because mm. we have a culture that's tilted away from interdependence to independence. And that tells us that to be truly successful, we've got to be able to do things on our own, not depend on other people. Yeah. We've got to be self-sufficient. But the reality is that we have evolved to be interdependent species, right? So if, if we have evolved to be interdependent, if our biology responds- What does interdependent mean? Interdependent means that we need each other, that we okay. actually rely on each other. That's my uh, new song. Yeah. I'm going to release interdependent, interdependent? ladies. That's it. I love it. <laughs> okay. I love it. Go on. Um, but if we have evolved to be interdependent yeah. and social connection makes us feel better and it makes us safer and enables us to perform better and, and produce more, then if we're somehow forcing ourselves to do the opposite of that, then it creates real conflict internally. It actually doesn't make us feel good. Our bodies evolved to feel good in one set of circumstances, mm -hmm. but our culture is pushing us toward a different set of circumstances. And that creates conflict. And I think that conflict manifests as people having just really low self-esteem as people being depressed and anxious because they're chasing an ideal that I think at our heart doesn't really speak to us. Now, if you go out on a street corner in London or New York or anywhere and you get 100 people together and you ask them, tell me what your top three priorities are in life, I guarantee you that almost all of them will list a person as their number one priority. Maybe it's their mom or their dad or their sister or their, Beyonce. their spouse. <laughs> Beyonce well, for you, your best friend, yeah, I understand. Mm -hmm. But the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, are those stated priorities reflected in how we're actually living our life? Meaning, yeah. is that where we're putting our time and our attention and our focus? And for many people, myself included, for much of my life, the answer has been no. Actually, there's been a gap between what I've stated as my priorities, which are people, and how I'm living my life, which is more oriented around a traditional model of success. And so I think part of the reason this is so relevant and connects to social media is what social media does in such a powerful way is it's an amplifier. It amplifies ideas, it amplifies culture, and it has helped amplify a culture that has put uh, wealth and fame and power and as the definitions of achievement and success at the center and has made people often feel uh, that if they don't, haven't achieved those or acquired enough of that, that they are somehow not enough. And so when you're engaged in a culture of comparison um, and when you're, it's oriented around those kind of values, you can start to get lonely very, very quickly. This is not to say that pursuing fame or you know, success in the workplace is wrong. Not at all. You know, that could be the path to happiness for you in some way, shape, or form. The question is, where does it fall on the priority list relative to people? And I think whenever the lower people slip on our priority list, the lower our relationships fall, on our, on our, in terms of our focus areas in life, I think the lonelier we get and the unhappier we are. So true. 
I've spent the last two years, I'm a, a full-time activist and then I'm also, I moonlight as an actress and a TV host. And so I don't think I've had time off, like a week off in maybe two and a half years. I also have a lot of uh, family members who have very stressful, uh, difficult lives. And I am consumed uh, by my life in its entirety mm-hmm. and find myself at the end of two years of this sort of press run where people think that I'm this sort of like people write ridiculous articles about me as the feminist hero that we need whereas I'm really just ignorant and learning and trying to figure things out or they uh, talk about my successes and my achievements and how I'm managing to balance all these things at the same time and we have this expression that I'm sure you must have used during your time in the White House boss bitch Uh, (laughs) frequent frequent political uh, yeah lingo (laughs) Um, so we would use the term we use the term especially amongst women nowadays of boss bitch like the more you can achieve You've got to think like a man. You've got to work like a man. You've got to be independent, run 20 things at once, like be your own boss, be your own CEO, all of which I support uh, completely because this independence can guarantee a certain level of freedom. But at the same time, the pursuit of that is now so almost obsessive amongst my generation that I forgot to book time for myself and for my friends. And it's not that I thought money was more important or success or rewards were more important. It's just that those things slipped in as a priority. Exactly. And they just creep into your life. And before you know, before you've even looked, when you're saying yes to everything, you don't notice how your schedule's filling up. So that you go six weeks without a day off. And your health obviously is, uh, your health struggles, but also your social life just disintegrates. Mm-hmm. And so thankfully these 12, my 12 Jesus friends uh, have been able to put up with me, but I've never felt like more consumed mm. by my existence. And so I spend a lot of time telling people that boss bitch is fine as long as you don't take it all the way to dead bitch, <laughs> which is what I, I'm worried it will become if I don't stop. Well, I, I think that's that's very insightful of you because I do think in the modern world that we have to be very intentional about mm-hmm. how we build connections into our life and how we nourish those connections over yeah. time. Just building it to, to begin with isn't enough. We've got to nurture our connections over time. Uh, and that can be time consuming. It can be messy. Uh, you know, if you're close to somebody as you are with your 12 friends, I'm sure it's not always, you know, you know, sort of a, it's not always simple. It's not no. always, it can be complicated and you can have disagreements. And because with the people you're closest to, you can be yourself and you can be open. That means there's going to be some level of conflict, but that's part of what living a rich life of relationships entails. And one of my concerns as I look at the world, the world that my children are starting to grow up in, and they're small, you know, my son is, they just is three and a half. My daughter Shanti is two. They, you know, they still have many years, hopefully, God willing, um, you know, oh, to learn and Did you write a world. book with two such small babies? It was challenging. It was challenging. I will tell you that uh, I don't think they were a fan of the book writing process because it took me away you know, yeah. from them a lot. When I started writing it, my son was just learning to speak. And the week I finished writing the book, he had learned enough to say to me, Papa, are you done with your book yet? And I was so happy that week to finally tell him, yes, yes, they just, I am. That's so great. But, you know, I think about them a lot because more more than anyone, they were my biggest motivation for writing this book. Mm -hmm. Because I look at the world they're growing up in, the world that we're all living in, and I see a world full of promise, full of extraordinary people whose 
roots and whose evolutionary roots are are in togetherness, you know, whose fundamental nature, I believe, is to give and to receive love. I think Mm -hmm. that is how we are programmed. But I see them living in a world uh, that is pushing us away from that, to be someone that we're not, to live in fear instead of to live in love, to live uh, in anxiety and worry that we're not enough and that we're somehow broken in some way. And I don't want my children to grow up chronically feeling like they're not enough. I don't want them to feel that they have to go through life alone because if they fall, nobody will be there to help lift them up and that they can't reach out to other people and do the same because everyone is just looking out for themselves. I want them to instead grow up in a world that's truly Mm people-centered, where we prioritize relationships, not only with the people we love, but with the strangers we encounter and where we give people benefit of the doubt, where we recognize that one of the greatest gifts that we have as human beings is the opportunity to be in relationship with each other. And when we seize that opportunity, when we invest in those relationships, when we give of ourselves, especially in vulnerable moments, that the rewards that we reap, the joy that we find is extraordinary. And that's what makes life meaningful. And so to build a world that's truly centered around people is more than about a single program. It's more than about passing a law, about shifting consciousness and culture so that we can actively choose a new way of being. There are few people, I think, who are better poised to do that than the rising generation uh, of young people in our country who Mm -hmm. have the character and the will and the strength to voice a desire to live differently, you know, who have on many issues, whether it's climate change uh, or other issues, have made it clear that they're not content to remain with the status quo, that they're not content to accept the world as it is that they want to help remake the world into what it can be and what it should be for all of us. And that's why I think this journey and this mission really to build a more connected world is one that I feel so committed to because I know it's what we need to be healthy, to be strong, to be happy. To do it will take all of us thinking about the choices we make in our own life, of where we spend our time, who we spend that time with and of what we ultimately prioritize. I like your suggestion of using social media as a means to encourage physical gathering. And I think that that's something that I will take away from this in particular is making sure that the way that I use, because I'm definitely guilty of of not registering that six months or a year has gone by since I've seen someone that I care about because I've seen so much of their face on social media which of course is just, as you said earlier, the highlight reel. And I've liked their picture or I saw their pictures of holiday, whereas I'm still old enough to be of the generation where you used to meet up with a friend to see mm. their holiday photographs yeah. in print. Yeah, And there was something really special about that. And then you'd hear the story behind the picture and hear about the ups and the downs and the fights and the triumphs of the holiday. Whereas you don't get any of that with social media. It's just lots of their favorite pictures in a swimsuit. <laughs> or by a perfect sunset or of a great avocado bloody toast. Um, and so I'm certainly someone who's now through my busyness realized that I've sort of busied myself into a hole mm. and I'm now looking at how I consume social media. I think it's fantastic and it's a vital uh, a vital part of how we learn about what's happening in the world. It's a vital part of activism. It's vital for people with disabilities, physical disabilities who can't necessarily always meet up with others in person. But I definitely think it's important that more of us address 
how it is also destabilizing our habit of gathering. Yeah. Um, you mentioned activism, just a, a word on that. You know, I spent a number of years um, building an advocacy organization with my wife. That's actually how we met. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I learned, which is something that most advocates get to know very quickly, is that people come to the table for the cause, but they stay at the table because of the community, because of the people that they meet there. People's commitment to a cause- Future hot wife. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <Go on. laughs> no, why you stayed now because you've been back. <laughs> before we go further i'm just going to take us to a quick break start clean with clorox because clorox delivers a powerful clean every time because messes happen because the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And we're back. But the truth is, like, nobody's like commitment to a mission can sustain just working on a, on a cause alone by themselves. Like, we need that community. So if we really want to build sustained movements for change in our world, whether it's around issues like climate or, or other issues, we need to think about how we foster strong social connections. The other thing is that when we think about building connection, like, I'm, I know that we live busy lives and that people feel really stretched in a lot of different directions. And in order to build connection in your life, you don't have to necessarily clear your whole schedule and say, okay, I'm going to devote six hours a day to just going and knocking on the doors of my friends to visit them and say hi. Although, hey, they might, that might be deeply rewarding to you. Mm-hmm. Instead, I actually think a little bit can go a long way in terms of time spent. So for example, if we were to spend just five minutes a day, minimum of five minutes a day, Connecting with somebody that we love, that could be calling them, that could be video conferencing with them, that could be writing them an email or, the te- or a text saying, hey, I'm just thinking of you. And I was remembering this thing that you told me uh, and it brought a smile to my face. Just five minutes then consistently over time can make a big difference. And mm-hmm. second, if we think about the quality of the time that we're already spending with people and how we can increase that, one of the simple ways we can do that is actually by reducing the distraction in the time we're already spending with people. So if I'm catching up with a friend uh, over dinner, we might think that just having our phones out but face down is okay because, you know, I'm not going to be distracted. I consider that a yeah. huge commitment. <laughs> it's tough and it feels strange if you're used to having your phone on you it's to like, no. put it away. But there are actually studies, um, in fact, some studies out of the UK showing that even the mere presence of a phone, even if it's face down, has a negative effect on the quality of the conversation as perceived by both parties. Um, 
we, many of us also, and I've been guilty of this too, I'm sad to say, although I've now tried to no longer do this, but many of us have been guilty of talking to a friend on the phone and also scrolling through like our phone and looking at our inbox or social (laughs) media at the same time. I feel attacked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is normal. And, And the reason that you do it isn't because you're a bad person. It's because the way many of the devices and also many of the platforms are designed is to pull you in. It's to suck your attention. Well, I mean, they use actual neuroscientists to help engage you in the most addictive way possible to create these apps. Yes, this is not fly-by-night design. Yeah, this this is, is very intentional. It's not our fault. Uh, psychologically yeah. driven uh, design elements in all of these apps. Yeah, it's terrible. So they're, they're pulling you in, right? But if you notice those kind of conversations, you can sometimes have a 30-minute conversation with a friend and barely remember what you talked about because mm-hmm. you're scrolling through a whole bunch of things. Or you hear the words, but you're not actually processing them uh, and the full depth of their meaning. Instead of talking to a friend for 30 minutes in a distracted way, if you just focus on talking to them for 10 minutes, I guarantee you will find that to be much more meaningful and rewarding and insightful than the 30 minutes of distraction. So there are time efficient ways that Mm -hmm. we can actually improve the quality of our connection and create a feeling of sustained connection over time. I also, by the way, sorry, just Mm, recommend turning your phone off when you are hanging out with a friend. If, like me, you slag people off. Uh, That's uh, English slang for um, gossiping. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes I've been known to have a gossip and turning off my phone alleviates that terror that I'm sure you've had at least once, knowing your career past. (laughs) At some point, you've said something you weren't supposed to say about someone and it's just a great relief to have your phone off so you never get that terrible moment, which has definitely happened to me, where for some reason your bastard phone has dialed <laughs> that person that you're speaking about. Fair enough. That, that is a danger. We live in a world where it's hard to be vulnerable. I think it's especially in an age Why where... Why is that? Well, I think it's because... Has it always been a, a world in which we're afraid to be vulnerable? I think we've been afraid to be vulnerable for a very long time, but I think it's particularly hard now actually because of technology, because having a vulnerable moment means that you're taking a risk, right? And if you take a risk, when I took a risk, you know, maybe being vulnerable in middle school uh, and I maybe said something that I thought was okay, but that people thought was dumb, 10 people knew about it. Right. Right. These days you do that and thousands of people, you know, know, are viewing it uh, online and, uh, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden your embarrassment is profound. So that increases the risk of being vulnerable for many people and it makes them close up, you know, a little bit, but that's really problematic because it is in our vulnerable moments that we connect with other people. That's when we expose our, our jagged edges and our imperfections. And it's those imperfections you know, that connect us to other people. Um, if we can't show those, then we're all walking around with masks on, seeming like we're perfect, trying to be better than what we think we and are. And never learning. And never learning, never connecting, yeah. and never really feeling fulfilled in the way that we deserve. Fascinating. That is so true. I've always thought of it as, because obviously our my generation in particular is our, our language, our vocabulary around mental health and and feelings and learning how to communicate them has vastly improved because we've grown up on the internet and our television is much more uh, communicative about that sort of stuff. Uh, I always presumed that we are more open just because we're better versed. But actually, that does make great sense mm. that the fear of then being publicly and permanently 
embarrassed or rejected and and used as some sort of example of something socially, politically that someone can see <laughs> all yeah. the way on the other side of the world. That never even occurred to me until now. So you're right. Oh, the fucking internet. <laughs> <sighs> it's not all bad though. You know, I, think I know. To your your point about what do you do if you're feeling marginalized because of your sexual orientation, mm-hmm. for example. Well, you know, years ago, if you were in a small town uh, and there was nobody else who was like you, there wasn't a whole lot you could do, right, in mm-hmm. terms of finding somebody to engage with. But thanks to the fact that we have more online communities and yeah. opportunities to find people, we, we don't have to always struggle alone the way we did before. That's true with illness as well. For many people who struggle with illness, especially illness that may prevent them from getting out into their neighborhood and, and traveling to meet new people or go to support groups, being confined to their house does not have to be a sentence uh, to isolation because they can now connect with patient communities online and with others. It's not always easy to do that, but we have more options now to find community uh, than we did before. And this is why, as we think about technology, it's really important that we not paint it with a single brush. And no, no, say, of course, of course. Like, it's, no, bad. it's incredible. Like I said, the movement, the advocacy, the yeah. and the way we are able to learn uh, is so incredible and connect. Yeah, but I think my challenge to tech entrepreneurs is for them to think more intently about what the yardstick is by mm-hmm. which we measure the success of technology. If we say that we want to build technology that strengthens relationships, as opposed to just increases the volume of interaction you know, on the platform, then I think that might lead us to design a different kind of technology than we have right now. It might lead us to actually measure the quality of interactions, measure whether people feel more or less lonely, more or less empathy when they engage with our tool. Um, and I think we may have something that looks a bit different from what we have now. It all, it all depends on what our intent is. Yeah. Um, what's the value system that underlies the technology and what are we measuring to make sure that we hold ourselves to account what we're seeking to create. So really, anyone listening to this, the goal here is just to reach out and get out and encourage people, I suppose, to try to come together, even if it's in the the tiniest groups, just a one-on-one or two friends over, even just in your house, eating a pizza can be such an incredible, nourishing night out. Better than any stupid fucking award ceremony I've ever been to, I can tell you that. I've done both. the, uh, the irony does strike me that we're having this conversation in the middle of the fucking coronavirus hysteria, like the ultimate loneliness virus that is telling everyone to stay home, <laughs> don't go to work, don't go to concerts, don't touch anyone, uh, don't get on a plane. Uh, the, the irony that this uh, so-called epidemic is breaking out <laughs> as we're telling people that we need more human face-to-face connection does not escape me. But hopefully yeah. we'll be out of the hysteria. And- well, hopefully the hysteria will settle. But this is actually a, the coronavirus or COVID-19 challenge we're facing is, a, mm-hmm. to me, a stark reminder of why it's so important for us to invest in relationships. And it's to wash in, our hands. And to wash our hands. <laughs> <laughs> and to not touch your face as often yeah. as most of us do. Because it's in times of stress like this mm-hmm. that the strength or weakness of our social networks is exposed. And if we are teetering on the edge of loneliness... And then we're in a scenario where we can't see people either because let's say they're quarantined or we have to be quarantined or we can't travel to see the people that we wanted to see. That can really tip us, you know, into into a difficult state. Look, at the end of the day, as challenging as loneliness is, and Mm -hmm. we've talked about all the ways in which it's difficult and, Mm -hmm. and how consequential it is for our health. I actually feel quite encouraged about the possibility of creating a more connected world. Mm -hmm. Because I think that the steps that we can take 
to create greater connection in our lives and the lives of others can be relatively simple, but quite powerful. Like we know that, you know, focusing on the quality of the time we're already spending, making sure we're spending five minutes a day with people we love. These are powerful. It turns out also service is such a powerful way to escape the downward spiral of loneliness and shift our focus from ourselves yeah. to other people while also reaffirming that we have value to bring to the world. Mm-hmm. And if we can build an element of service into our life, and service is not just volunteering in your soup kitchen, it's also helping people in school or at work. It's helping strangers you may encounter uh, who are struggling with their luggage or their groceries. These small acts of service that might take 10 seconds or 15 seconds can be powerful, including smiling at people who are strangers. You no, know, I'm this, English, you've gone too far. <laughs> I'm here to push you a little bit, you know? And, but, You're out of your mind, Rebecca. <laughs> but you know, I'll it's tell drunk. you that sometimes it feels uncomfortable to smile at people in elevators or, you know, or strangers, because mm-hmm. we're just so not used to doing that. But I've tried experimenting a bit with this more, you know, just being, taking, you know, the initiative and being more conscious about reaching out to just simply through a smile and or saying hello to people in elevators. And what I have found is that 99 times out of 100, they're receptive. And all the, every time, I actually feel better about the interaction. Don't even do it if in I London. In doubtful. <laughs> don't do it. They don't like it well, there. I may come and just, I may drag you into an experiment with me and we may walk around London smiling at yeah, people. You get and smacked how they react. in the face. That'll happen. To them. <laughs> <laughs> people, people look at you. I've tried smiling. I tried mm-hmm. this little experiment of yours. Uh, and people just look at you like, the fuck are you smiling at? Um, so I think maybe London in particular needs just a little bit of warming up. Uh, maybe the same could be said of New York as well at times. Um, but I do know what you mean. Uh, thank you so much. This has been so illuminating and wonderful to talk about. It's also been uh, something that's been something scary about this. Learning the health implications and the life implications of loneliness is something to take really seriously and to not... Uh, just take this for granted Uh, the statistic about you being 50% more likely to live a longer life (laughs) scared the shit out of me frankly Um, but I do feel a sense of hope and I do feel like the fact that these conversations are even being had and these books are being written uh, like yours uh, will contribute to us destigmatizing I think destigmatizing is the first step of this journey for our generation Absolutely. If you're lonely, it does not mean you're broken. Mm -mm. And the good thing is, even despite all the health implications of loneliness, you don't have to be a doctor or a nurse in order to address loneliness. You just need to be a human being who cares about someone else and has the courage to demonstrate that uh, through your words and through your actions. And something that that little you and little I could have benefited from knowing when we were younger is um, what Ava DuVernay says, which is that you don't have to spend all of your energy trying to get a seat at the table. You can just build your own table. Yeah. And by that, I mean, go out and find your own tribe. And I've done it and you've done it. And look at us, still alive, <laughs> <laughs> having a lovely day. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much, Jamila. I really enjoyed the conversation. A quick thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Uh, Kimmy Lucas, my producer, and Sophia Jennings, who is also one of the producers on the podcast. A big thank you to my boyfriend, James Blake, who I forced to make the theme tune for this. And uh, I love it very much. And uh, I'd like to thank myself.
clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, my charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.